Well, good morning, everybody. So good to see everybody. I already told the ushers that I'm taking two uh, parking spots back with me when I go back to Montclair. So just want you to know you won't, you won't miss them. So there were two guys, uh, Sam and Bill, and they were, they went to the bar to get a couple of drinks and they were drinking a few rounds of whatever they were drinking. And so Sam turns to, after a couple of rounds, Sam turns to Bill and says, I bet you can't recite the Lord's Prayer. How many can recite the Lord's Prayer here? Let me, let me see your hands. Okay, most of you, great. He, he turns to him and he challenges him. I bet you can't recite the Lord's Prayer. And so Bill looks at that $20, you know, and, uh, and he says, oh, I bet I can. Oh, that, that $20 is going to be mine. So Sam says, bet. So Bill gets, stands up on the, from the bar and he begins to recite. Now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. And with that, Sam interrupted him and said, here's the $20. I didn't think you knew it. <laughs> Prayer is a wonderful thing. We're starting, we've started a, a journey with Jesus in prayer. And today I want to look at that model that he left us for prayer. Of course, I'm talking about the Lord's Prayer, but I think we'll say it a little bit better than, than Bill did. In fact, I, I, I think that most of us can recite this prayer, right? We, we can recite this prayer actually by memory. In fact, I found that when I was preparing this message and I was going through it, I found it difficult to use the uh, New International Version because I learned it in the King James. How many King James people do we have here? Boy, you guys are old. There's an old group here. <laughs> well, let's recite it, shall we? Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 13. We're going to put it up on the board. So if you don't remember it or if you've never heard it, this is the Lord's Prayer. Let's say it together, shall we? Our Father... In heaven, oh, now I hear some King James people there. I heard you. I heard that who art in heaven. I heard it. I got you. That's all right. No, no, no. There's no shame in your game. All right. I, I prefer to say it in, in King James, uh, by the way. And you say it in whatever version you learned it. You can say it. Don't worry about it. I have it on the screen. I'll read it as if it were on the screen. But you say it any way you want because the, the thing is I want us to be together. So let's, let's say it again. Ready? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Every word in the Lord's Prayer has significance. Every word in the Lord's Prayer has meaning. The problem resides at times that we feel uneasy to pray, sometimes because we don't we don't know where we stand with God. There's nothing worse than when you don't know when you stand with someone. You know, I, I, it, we have now text messages. You know, how many text here? How many of you text? Okay, we'll get more, most of you texting before the service is over. But you know, in a text message, when somebody sends you a text, 
you don't always know what they're feeling, right? It, it, the, the words are very flat, and so the feeling of that word, and so if you've had a little conniption with somebody and they send you a text, you're not quite sure how they're feeling about you, and, and, and so it, it demands a conversation in order for you to really understand what they're really saying. And today, I want to talk about a conversation with God so that we can understand what he's really saying with us in this Lord's Prayer. Now, in Luke chapter 11, we're, there's two passages where the Lord's Prayer is found. It's Luke chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 6. In Luke chapter 11, the disciples said to Jesus, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. I don't know any better person around that can teach us to pray like Jesus can. And can you imagine that here they're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Jesus about prayer. Wouldn't you have liked to have been there? Amen? Well, that's why it was recorded in the scripture. Because these words are Jesus teaching us to pray. So, how did Jesus teach us to pray? First of all, we're going to examine the Lord's Prayer to reveal his instructions. The first thing is, he taught us to approach God as Father. He taught us to approach God as Father. Look at Matthew chapter 6. And verse 9, this is then how you should pray. Our Father, say that. He said, pray our Father in heaven, right? Our Father in heaven. Now, these, I want to look at these two words, our, and I want to look at the word Father. Our. He said, pray our Father. And I love that. Because it indicates that we are a community. We are a community. Notice that he didn't say, my father. He said, our father. And I love that because right in the Lord's prayer, he commits us to looking at each other as key to one another's growth and development. In fact, what I love about this, and I, I never really saw this. I, I, I've been serving the Lord for a long time. I won't tell you how long. But I've been serving the Lord for a long time. And I never really saw this, that when Jesus said, our Father, he was including himself. So when we're praying, our Father, Jesus is in that, is in that mix. In fact, the Bible teaches that he, what he is instructing us is this, that we are part of a body. Notice how many, throughout the entire Lord's Prayer, he says, give us this day. Forgive us our, our debts. Lead us not. Deliver us. Every single word in the Lord's Prayer involves us, not me. We are a body. We are designed to be connected. As an individual, I am not the church. I don't know how many people over the years that I've spoken to, they said, well, I don't need to go to church because I'm the church. Well, let me tell you something. I am not the church. Guess what? You are not the church. Come on, look at somebody and say, you are not the church. We are the church. We are the church. And so we need to embrace being connected. When we connect with one another, guess what we do? We invoke the principle of synergy. I love this. You know what synergy is? 
Synergy is this. It's the principle that if I can lift 100 pounds and Brother Harry can lift 100 pounds, together, how many can we lift? No, we can lift 1,000 pounds because synergy does something here. Synergy is the principle that doesn't add strength, it multiplies strength. The Bible says that one can chase a thousand and two can put 10,000 to flight. So can you imagine in these 40 days as we connect together and we say, God, come to Rockaway. When all of us are praying, it brings synergistic power into being that God has to do something. Synergy kicks in. Synergy doesn't add strength. It multiplies strength. The other word that he uses is not only our, but he uses the word, when you pray, pray our Father. Father. And, and let's not overlook the importance of that word in this, in this scripture. Because in our culture right now, right, the title Father, we look at this for some of us who have prayed the Lord's Prayer, whether it be in a funeral, a wedding, or in a church service, or wherever you've prayed it. You might have prayed it over and over again. We overlook that term sometimes, Father. And it's very easy, excuse me, to overlook that term. But I was reading, as I was doing my research uh, for this particular uh, message, I was reading that a German scholar was doing research in New Testament literature. And this, this is what he discovered, that in the entire history of Judaism, including all of the existing literature of the day, the Old Testament, extra-biblical Jewish writings dating from the beginning of Judaism, until the 10th century AD, there's not, in Jewish literature, there's not a single reference of a Jewish person addressing God directly in the first person as father. The first rabbi to address God as father was Jesus of Nazareth. He changed the perspective that we had of God. He was not just Jehovah Jireh, our provider. He was not just Jehovah Nisi. He was not all these names that the, the Jewish people knew, but now he was being revealed as father. And guess what? Jesus instructs us and introduces us to the concept that God is intimate. He's personal. He's involved in our lives. In fact, that he wants us, he invites us to become his children. He invites us into sonship. Jesus was making it clear that we as disciples have been adopted into God's family. In fact, he said in John, but as many as received him, Jesus, as many as received Jesus, to them, those who received Jesus, he gave them the right to be children of God. Now, we are living in a fatherless generation, so this is an important verse to us, important. In fact, this morning I want to say this. If you are not part of God's family to this morning, if you have not joined his family, I got news for you. God wants you to be a part. God loves you. He wants you to be a part of his family. He doesn't just want you to be an observer. He wants you to be a full-fledged a member of the body of Christ. He wants to invite you 
and, and, but you have to take that decision. You have to make that decision to say, I want to be a part of God's family. I want to eat at his table. How many want to eat at the table of the Lord? And today I'm going to extend to you at the end of my talk today, I'm going to extend to you an opportunity to join God's family, to be a part of it. The Bible teaches that we're adopted into God's family. We have the full privileges. In Romans 8.15, it says this. I'm just going to read a portion of this scripture, not the whole thing. I just want to get the bottom half of that. It says, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, by Jesus, we cry, Abba, Father. The Bible there, Paul says that we have been adopted into God's family. In so much is not only do we cry, Father, we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is an Aramaic word that means daddy. The spirit in your, that, that God puts in your heart when you become part of the family, he doesn't simply want you to call God Father. I love old movies. I'm an a old movie. I love the movies from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. You know, that whole genre of movies, Humphrey Bogart, Edward G. Robinson, that whole, that whole clique. I love those movies. And it's always interesting to me when I watch those movies and, and where, there's a, where there's a family gathered, you know, especially around dinner time, you know, the, the, the thing that always interests me, they always have suits and ties and they're sitting around the table. Anybody know what that? And then the son or the daughter always addresses father as, hello, father. Never daddy, pop, what's up, dad? Well, Jesus lifted the formality of simply calling God father. And he says, no, when you come, I've put my spirit into your heart so you can say, daddy, God. Hey, dad. Hey, pop. I love when my, my, my children, they call me, hey, dad, what's up? They don't call me uh, Father Robert? No, they don't call me that. That would really be strange, wouldn't it? They say, Dad. You know, in Spanish, we, 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 Spanish people, we say, Papi. Yo, Papi, what's up? Daddy. It's intimate. Now, I realize today, when I'm talking about Father, this 20, 30 years in our country, we're living in a fatherless generation. We're living in a generation that a lot of absentee fatherism, fathers. We're living in a, in a generation where even the fathers that were in the home were not the best. And some of you that are in this audience this morning, when I'm talking about God as father, you might feel triggered, as the, as the young people say today. You know, you feel triggered. Something goes off. You don't want to know God as father because as soon as I mention father... Something triggers in your mind and you remember. Father was cold. He was distant. He was absent. He was abusive. You see, the devil loves to pervert the image of God. The devil wants to destroy any good concept that you might have of God and make him unapproachable. That's why a lot of people love Jesus. They love Jesus. They think the Holy Spirit is spooky, you know. He's a little spooky. And God, I want to stay away from him because he's mean. God is abusive. 
But I want you to know this. This is what the Bible teaches, that every, say every, every good and perfect gift comes from God. And the Bible says this. This is so powerful that or the songwriter said it this way. There is no shadow of turning with him. That means if God was good yesterday, he will be good today. And guess what? He will be good tomorrow. You don't have to worry about God changing his feelings or altering the way he is because all he can be is good. The devil, on the other hand, is a thief. He's a murderer. He's the father of lies. And I want to let you know this morning that God wants to redeem your idea of father. I love the Psalms in Psalms 27 verse 10. What a powerful verse of scripture this is. Listen to what it says. Because this might be you. My mother and father may abandon me. But the Lord will take care of me. Here's another way it said, my mother and father walked out and left me, but God took me in. Here's another way, my mother and father deserted me, but the Lord accepted me. And I love this last one. My mother and father abandoned me, but you took me in and you made me yours. Not powerful. That's the God. That's Father God. Let go of your concepts. Release those that have hurt you this morning. And know that God is a good Father. In fact, guess what? On your worst day, what's your worst day? Think back in your mind. I'm going to. We'll redeem it in a minute, but think back on your mind, on your worst. What was your worst day in life? What was the day that you said, I wish I could take that back. I wish I could do it all over. What was your worst day? Guess what? On your worst day, he loved you. Think about that. The Bible declares that while we were enemies while we were enemies of God he was making a way for you he was loving you before you knew him before you had any thought to, to serve him he was loving you I remember I, I think I've told this story I remember my father standing in the living room when I was just a little boy and he was so hurt and angry of all the things that his life had turned out to be and I'll never forget he looked up at the sky and he pointed to God and he began to curse God to his face and on that day when God when he was cursing God God was loving my dad and you know what a few years later my father, I'll never forget, I was preaching and I made an altar call. And here comes my dad. And from that day forward, my father became an evangelist. The same one who cursed God could not stop but tell of the good news of Jesus Christ. On your worst day, he loved you. 
And I want to let you know that there's nothing you can do to make God love you anymore. And guess what? There's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. Allow the Father to father you. Allow the Father to father you. How did Jesus teach us to pray? He taught us to acknowledge God with praise. Acknowledge God with praise. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, it tells us, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed or hallowed. Which one is it? How many say it's hallowed? How many say it's hallowed? Well, it's both, actually. So you can use it either way. Hallowed be thy name. The word hallowed is an old word, so it's not always used. So we want to define it. It means let your name be honored. Let your name be praised. It means to treat as sacred and ultimate. It means hallowed means to make something your greatest concern. You see, praise is not defined by what happens to us. Praise is defined by who dwells in us. And we are to praise God. We are to hallow his name. We are to make his name the greatest desire, the greatest concern of our life. Some of us are concerned about our kids. Some of us are concerned. I mean, that, that is overwhelming. It's robbing you. Of your, your, some of you are concerned about your debt. Some of you are concerned about your student loans. Some of you are concerned about your, your family, your, your marriage. Whatever your concern is, let praise be your greatest concern. Let praise be the thing that drives you back to God to worship him and to, and to put him first in your life. I love uh, uh, the German philosopher Nietzsche. I'm sure some of you have heard of him, Nietzsche. Listen to this as I was, <laughs> I had to get this quote in here. Nietzsche said, I cannot believe in a God that wants to be praised all the time. That was Nietzsche. I cannot believe in a God that wants to be praised all the time. But I love a songwriter, and I, I wish I knew his name I, I, or her name. I, I couldn't find the name of this particular songwriter. This is how the songwriter said. When I think about the Lord, how he saved me, how he raised me, how he healed me to the uttermost. When I think about the Lord, how he picked me up and he turned me around and then he set my feet on solid ground. It makes me want to shout hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, you're worthy of all the glory and all the praise. And he didn't leave it there. He came back and said, it makes me want to shout. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, you're worthy of all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. Nietzsche, eat your heart out. You got to praise God. The Bible says in, the, in, in Revelation that, that there were these living creatures and 24 elders around the throne. And they were all beginning to, it, this is what it said. It didn't just say they were praising God. It says they fell down before the throne. And they began to worship him. In fact, the 24 elders are important. And I'll tell you why they're important. Because they have crowns. 
The fact that they have crowns tells me that there's something important about their position in heaven. But when they got before the throne of God, they had to take those crowns off and throw them to the ground and recognize that there's only one that's worthy, only one that deserves all the praise, all the honor, all the glory. I love that because when you come into this room, it don't matter if you're an executive of a company, a CEO, a bank manager, whatever your responsibility is, a senator, a governor, you come into the house of God and you take off your crown and you lay it before him and you say, God, only you deserve the glory. Only you deserve the glory. Hallelujah. How did Jesus teach us to pray? He taught us to anticipate God's kingdom. Look at verse 10. Jesus instructs us to pray, your kingdom come. The word kingdom is made up of two words, king and domain, king and domain. And it indicates the word kingdom is the rulership of the king. It's everywhere that the king rules. The kingdom of God is a moral and spiritual kingdom which the God of grace is setting up in this fallen world. God's kingdom is not a place but a relationship. It exists everywhere people come and enthrone Jesus as their Lord of their life. You see, God says when you pray, pray your kingdom come. God wants to rule. There is a sense that he rules everything. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. See, God rules everything. But the Bible also says that not all things are currently subject to him. And so what we're praying is, Lord, let everything around us become subject to you. Let your kingdom come, let, it sub- let those that are not submitted to you become submitted to you. When we pray thy kingdom come, we're asking God to bring everything under his, submiss- uh, under his submission. We want God's sovereignty displayed now. We need God's sovereignty displayed now. We want evil confronted. It is the kingdom of God that confronts evil. When we pray thy kingdom come, it anticipates and readies us for God to start moving. The kingdom of God come means this. God, enforce the work that you did on the cross. God, when you died on the cross, you said that he took our stripes So that we might be healed. Lord, thy kingdom come. Let healing come now. Let blind eyes be open now. Let deaf ears be unstopped now, Lord. Let cancer be cured now, Lord. Let disease be cured now, Lord. Let those that are from our family that have run away from God, let them come now. Thy kingdom come. Enforce the work of the cross, Lord. Enforce the work of the cross. And let me tell you something. The Lord's prayer can be offensive. 
It's offending to those who don't want to be under the leadership of God. Because this prayer is asking God, God, we want you to rule everywhere. We must anticipate the kingdom. Kingdom come. May our spiritual eyes be open. You know what? I'm, I'm just thinking, let's not let the nation go down the drain like this. Let's pray that kingdom come. If you're a news junkie like I am, it's, it's, it's hard to watch the news these days. Hard. But you know what? We ought to be praying as we hear something. Lord, let thy kingdom come. Bring your rule into that situation. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Finally, he taught us to pray, accept God's will. Accept God's will. In verse 10, it says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done. We're asking God to do what he wants to do. In the Greek, the word, when we're saying thy will be done, it literally means to happen. Let whatever you want to happen, let it happen. Thy will be done means we're bringing our priorities into sync with his. That is no longer what I want, but it's what he wants. We want thy will be done means that the way that heaven is, everything is subject to God. Everything cries out to God. Everything is saying, God, whatever you want to do, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. says, Lord, let earth mirror what's happening in heaven. And in order for that to happen, guess what? We're going to have to put down our will. It's easy to pray, thy will be done for the other person. You know, Lord, that person needs your will. But what about your life? You see, this, Jesus said, teach us to pray. And so it's about us, right? It's about, as an individual, that we are surrendering our life to Christ. That our own desires, our own preferences are yielded so that his will will be done. When Jesus yielded his will... His submission led him to the cross. Remember, and he prayed in the garden. He said, if there's a, a way, Father, to remove this cup, let it be so. But nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. His will led him to the cross. But the beautiful thing about it, it also led him to resurrection. And you will never know the power of resurrection in your life until you're willing to die to self and to die to the things of your own life. When you're willing to allow God to be the person who directs you. I love the great pastor Jack Hayford said it this way. Petitioning the father acknowledges his right to rule and decide in all matters. When we say thy will be done, petitioning the father acknowledges his right to rule and decide in all matters he has the right to lead he has the right to determine our outcomes Thy will be done Jesus in offering the Lord's prayer demonstrated the power of approaching God and agreeing with God he's not looking just for right words I remember I was teaching the school of prayer in Atlanta Georgia I was teaching the school of prayer and in the school of prayer 
we have exercises that we do. And so after we teach a session, we break up everyone and say, we're going to do a prayer exercise. And one of the first prayer exercises is very simple. Everybody was going to go around the room, and I, I, I don't remember exactly, but they're going to pray something. And I'll never forget, this woman came to me at the end of that session. She says, she says I'm leaving. I said, what's the problem? She says, I can't pray like those folks. I, I, I don't know how, I don't, I don't have those right words. And my heart really went out to her. Because I surmised that in her group, we had a lot of King James going on. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Lord, thou knowest that you can and will and must. And I mean, they were going for it. And here was this young lady. She didn't have the words. She didn't have the language. She didn't have the verbiage. She didn't have the scripture. But she had the heart. And I let her know. Exactly what I'm saying to you. He's not waiting for right words. Isn't that beautiful? He's waiting for a right heart. You don't have to know the language. You just got to know that he's father and he wants to hear from you. In the mid-1700s, I'm going to close with this story here. The American colonists wanted freedom from Britain. If you know your history, we were a colony of Britain, and they were really oppressive and taking the resources out of America for, for Britain. We were under their tyranny. But there was nothing we could do because we were no match. They had a strong military. They had strong wealth. In fact, they were the most powerful uh, country entity of their day at that time. They had wealth. They had weapons. We as Americans, we lacked resources. We didn't have a, a good militia. But General George Washington, who would become the first president of the United States, grabbed hold of a phrase that he read from a philosopher by the name of John Locke. And this is what John Locke wrote. Where the body of people or any single man is deprived of their right and have no appeal on earth, then they have the liberty to appeal to heaven. George Washington was gripped by that statement. And he began to believe that America's freedom was in God's hands. He began to believe that, that what they were looking for was something that God wanted. And so George Washington had a flag commissioned. And on the flag, there was an evergreen tree and the words appealed to heaven. The evergreen tree symbolized God's everlasting covenant. And the words appealed to heaven was from that uh, John Locke statement. And he, what he did, he commissioned his flag and he flew it on. There was a squadron of six boats which he supplied with his own money. It's amazing. And he had this flag flying on all those boats. Appealed to heaven. The statement gripped the colonies and it ran through the 13 colonies and became a rallying cry for the, for the 13 
colonies. Appeal to heaven. And history records that this ill-equipped army with very little resources defeated the greatest military power of their day. What would happen if we took the Lord's prayer and we appealed to heaven? Tried everything else. Corey Ten Boom said, prayer is not a spare tire. You know, you pull it out when, when one of the tires gets flat. And here's the beauty of God. He realizes that we're pulling it out as a spare tire. He realizes our limitations and our lack of understanding of who he is, but he wants us to appeal to heaven this morning. What would happen, what would happen today if, if we as Christ Church from the, uh, at the West Campus and at the East Campus, if in these 40 days, what would happen if we prayed our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done here. Now. In this moment. In my family. In my church. In my nation. In all the nations of the earth. What would happen if we appealed to heaven in these 40 days? God can really make some changes. Last year, we named our prayer fest Changing History Through Prayer. George Washington is gone. This is our day. This is our moment. Are you ready to change history through prayer? Are you ready to pray thy kingdom come? Are you ready to pray Approaching God as Father. Are you ready to pray? Acknowledging Him with praise. Are you ready to pray? God's kingdom come. Are you ready to pray? Thy will be done. I want to pray for you. I want to pray.